Welcome to What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WET, from Portland State University's Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the Health Promotion Suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for a non-traditional campus. My name is Bella, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Josh, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And my name is Quinn. My pronouns are he, him, his. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be your hosts for this podcast. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking about the Disability Resource Center with Jen Duggar-Spalding, the director. So do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Jen. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I am the director of the DRC, as Bella just said, and um, I've been at PSU for about eight years. Awesome. We are so happy to have you today. Um, No one better than the director herself, right? (laughs) Um, So I wanted to start us off with a conversation about ableism and accessibility and how ableism shows up in higher education. So do you want to go ahead and talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, higher education is in an institution that um, was made um, to be very exclusive. As we know, it was an institution for men. It was an institution for white people. It was an institution for people who did not have disabilities of any kind. Um, And, you know, PSU is is no different in that we have a lot of barriers to um, get rid of because buildings and spaces were not created with people with disabilities in mind and and nor was, you know, the curriculum um, and just general practices that we follow in higher ed. So yeah, we, um, ableism is, is built into the culture of an institution like ours and it's built into every um, institution, honestly, and it's, it's all around us. Um, and we're oftentimes just completely unaware that um, things that are being said or done are ableist. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really important to talk about and um, how it, it really affects all students and our community at large if we're not being inclusive. Um, so how do, how do your services affect a a student's ability to to even be a student and to attend PSU if we're talking about ableism and accessibility? Um, Well, first, I think, you know, there are laws, obviously, that are in place that help a great deal. Um, Thankfully, we have Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act that was passed in 1973 that first said that um, disabled people Um, deserved environments free from discrimination um, and equal protection under the law. And then it wasn't again until 1990 with the Americans with Disabilities Act where we had some actual teeth to that um, and greater understanding of what non-discrimination actually means, what reasonable accommodations means and how we can make good on that promise. And then the law was was renewed again with the Amendments Act in 2011, where we got even more information about what service animals are and and what accessibility looks like in stadiums and pools and recreational spaces and um, 
we follow other laws as well, but you know, the institution PSU has policies and practices that kind of, you know, carry out um, those regulations. And my office, the Disability Resource Center was created as a way to ensure that the university was making good on, on those regulations and being accessible and inclusive. And so our, our work um, is to generally make sure that students have an accessible experience at PSU in all the ways that you know students have experiences, whether that's in the classroom, in housing, in um, field experience or, or internships, in um, study abroad to the extent that we can. Um, we you know are, are just making sure that everything is as accessible as it can be. But our work is um, reactive in a way. You know, I myself do a lot of proactive work, kind of like this podcast, and you know, speaking to different groups around campus to make sure that you know departments are all doing as much as we can proactively to welcome and include students who have different disabilities. Um, but the real core of the work in the DRC is reactive in meeting with students and finding out what barriers they're already experiencing, where, where the ableism is coming up um, and how we can either minimize it substantially or get rid of it completely for them in that one instance. So, you know, going back to your question, like our work is in removing ableism as it's already come up. Um, but it's, it's everyone's responsibility at PSU to make sure that we're removing ableism before a person with a disability encounters it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, based on like laws and regulations forming the DRC, often we know that um, laws, regulations, policies don't often go far enough. So what can we all do, you know, even if we're not in this community um, to make the world, our community, our PSU community more accessible and inclusive. Totally. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, Ondine is a really great example of physical accessibility that meets compliance, um, but clearly doesn't go far enough because if you are a person with a disability, physical disability, you have two choices of how you enter the building, but neither of those choices is the main entrance. One is the side entrance that goes through the basement of the building and you kind of have to like, you know, squirrel back and forth down these winding hallways to find the elevator. Or you go around the back of the building by the dumpster to enter this space. Um, and, you know, the building was built at a time where, you know, it would, there were no specific regulations around accessibility or compliance. So the building was built uh, in a way that was compliant and, and remains compliant because the laws basically ask us just to make updates to our campus as we can. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of story behind Ondine and why that hasn't been, you know, the front entrance hasn't been made accessible yet. It's not actually physically possible to make that front entrance uh, accessible now at this point. But the point being is um, that that meets compliance. We'll never get sued over the inaccessibility of Ondine. And yet, it's clearly not equal access. Um, and those situations happen a lot. Um, and so, yeah, 
um, our office does as much as we can to sort of minimize the barriers when they come up. And we do go beyond compliance um, in situations where we're able, because we know that quote unquote equal access does take more than going, you know, just to um, what's legally required. Right. And then it comes into the equity conversation too, because the needs are different. You know, it's not that one person needs more necessarily, but they're different and we need to be accommodating to um, specific needs. And I think in terms of um, PSU and students that may be allies or maybe in this community, um, what can students do in the classroom environment to make learning more accessible for their fellow students? Yeah. Um, there, there's just like so much that we can all be doing. Um, you definitely have opportunities every day to make the world a more accessible place. Um, in the classroom, you know, I think a lot of the onus is on the instructor who's creating the curriculum and creating like the structure of class and, um, and students sometimes may not have a lot of control over how accessible their class is to someone else. But if you're ever in a situation where, you know, you're in a group, for example, and you are working with someone else, you don't have to be rigid about, you know, what time we're meeting or where we're meeting or how this meeting is going to be handled. Oftentimes, flexibility is a key to make, meeting the needs of everyone, not just students with disabilities. So I would just say be flexible and you know, find a way to meet your goal or the expectation that's in place in a way that that meets everyone's needs. And outside of the classroom, you know, I mean, there's a ton we can be doing to um, make the world a better place. W one thing is just, um, you know, if you see a barrier, move it if you're able to. Um, these e-scooters around campus and all around Portland. I mean, I have them up and down my street sometimes. And when they get left in the middle of the sidewalk, you know, that creates a barrier for somebody else. Um, someone who has a physical disability may have to walk in the streets in order to get around it. Um, someone who is blind may not even, you know, know that it's there and trip over it. So don't just leave it there. If someone leaves their garbage can in the middle of the sidewalk, it's the same thing. You know, just, just scoot it out of the way. If you, if you have the physical ability to do that, use your privilege and move that barrier. And the same thing, you know, when we're creating content online, we have the ability to either create barriers or not in the same way that we do in physical space. And um, one really simple thing we can do is to add text to describe our images when we're posting like in Facebook, social media, any of the places, if you have a website that you're in charge of, um, add text to describe the images that you're using so that someone who either has a visual impairment knows what's going on or, you know, sometimes your phone doesn't load all the way. Maybe you're in bad service and you don't have access to the image either. And it's really good to know kind of what's there by reading the text. So. That, that's just like one small way to make electronic content accessible, but that kind of shows you how easy it can be to do that. And I really just encourage everybody to, to do a little bit of research and to find out more about how they can also just not 
continue creating barriers. I mean, I think that's something most of us don't even know that we're doing. Um, and yeah, it's pretty simple to, to do the reverse. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Some of those things I, I hadn't even thought about before. So I think this conversation will open people's eyes. Um, and like you said, with the social media too, like captioning videos can be really helpful. I've seen on TikTok, it's a big thing and you can see the difference um, of people responding to it, you know. Um, and in terms of the classroom, I know you have the note-taking program. Do you want to explain what that is? Um, yes, I will explain what that is. We don't use it as much anymore. Um, part of that is because we have some really great technology that will help students to take their own notes um, in ways that are more independent. But we do have a note-taking program. Um, students who um, have some disabilities will benefit from other people, um, a copy of other people's notes. So we in those instances, send out an email to all the classmates asking for someone to volunteer. Um, once a person does volunteer, they basically just upload a copy of the notes they took for themselves to our database. And there's a confidential transfer of that information to the student. The student never knows who their note taker is. The note taker never knows who the student is who's receiving them. Um, and at the end of the term, there is an amount of money that's given to the note taker, depending on how many credit hours they took notes um, and uh, you know how many weeks they took notes. So yeah, it's, it's not a nice way to earn money for the thing that you're already planning on doing for yourself um, and making your class a little bit more accessible. But um, we also, especially in remote learning, you know, we're seeing fewer students who are needing that accommodation because faculty are able to record their lectures and students can also see the captions during lecture if they want. And um, that is one way instructors can make their, their classes more accessible to everyone is by recording those lectures um, and giving students regardless of disability, regardless of learning style, the choice to go back and watch it again. Yeah, I think that's so important. The The note-taking has been helpful for friends that I have. So I think that's so important. And um, that's interesting too with the remote learning um, because for me, I've thought of it as like less accessible, but I think in some ways, you know, it just depends on the person and, and their needs, um, but there's benefits and, you know, pros and cons to it for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of students who are struggling hard right now. Um, a lot of students who desperately want to get back to the classroom. Um, but we're also seeing students who, you know, may have had, uh, you know, days where they couldn't get out of bed before. And now they can have those days and still be in class. Um, or the, the thing about recording lectures, you know, that helps so many students, students with learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, students who need to take breaks during class, to the restroom or take a medication or, you know, I mean, just so much flexibility is built into our remote learning inherently um, that I think a lot of students are finding the pros, probably also finding some cons as well, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I've, I've had, you know, 
many of those experiences that you mentioned of, of having it be convenient that it's just right here and I don't have to get fully dressed, but, um, but it's also missing that, you know, social component and the in-person communication for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I want to ask you about um, terminology involving people with disabilities. And, you know, some people might be scared to ask this question, but I think it's really important to bring up the conversation because I've heard um, a lot of different opinions on this, both in academia and in like, you know, on social media. Um, are there commonly used terms involving people with disabilities that are, are harmful that we still see in society? Um, is person first language where you say people with something, um, is that really preferred? Um, if you could share your thoughts, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there's a lot of language that we use that is still really um, prevalent in our society and really harmful. I think part of, I think the biggest part of um, the problem, the reason why we use harmful language is because we don't know our history. Um, you know, going all the way back, people with disabilities have been excluded from society and there have been terms used to describe disabled people that have been, you know, um, undesirable to say the least. And um, we continue to use words like that because we don't know our history. We don't understand what this used to mean, you know, just even decades ago. So, you know, all of the words that um, at one point in our time have been used to describe people with mental health related disabilities, right? So like crazy every day we hear that word. I mean, I at one point was taking tallies on how many times I heard it when I watched Netflix shows. And I don't even know what I ended up at. It was hundreds of times. Um, And so crazy, psycho, you know, all of those words that are kind of in that genre, um, insane, you know, Sometimes we use these words um, like crazy and insane specifically to mean things that are extremely good or extremely bad, right? They don't actually mean anything. If I say I have a crazy, I have a crazy day coming up, it means nothing. Is it good? Is it bad? We don't know. So it's really important to be specific. Just use your words. I have a really scary day coming up. I have a very busy day coming up. I have uh, an amazing day coming up, you know, whatever it is that you're, that you're thinking, sometimes we use the default word because I think our brains are just overloaded, you know, and using something like crazy or insane saves us the brain power of having to think about what am I actually saying? Um, but you can have a, a default word like that, that doesn't actually offend. So I have a default word of wild and I use it all the time. I have a wild day coming up. It's the same thing. It doesn't actually mean anything, but I can go on to define it later if I want. But if I don't wanna use that word, then I can be more specific. So I think that's really important. There are other words too that we use that we should not be using anymore. Um, Wheelchair bound and confined to a wheelchair are a couple of them. Um, Wheelchairs, you know, our freedom devices, they are liberating to people and um, allow folks to get from one place to another, just like legs. 
Um, so, you know, when we say things like confined to a wheelchair or wheelchair bound, you know, really draws this image of someone who's unable to get around, who's, um, who is, you know, unable to have the kind of life that, you know, folks who don't use wheelchairs imagine, you know, that they're missing out on. So I think those are, those are some big ones. Um, there, there are a lot of words that we shouldn't be using. Cripple is, is one, like, even when we say things like the economy is crippled and other people have been told that they are crippled, you know, what does that mean when we're using these negative words or words with negative connotations, um, uh, words with connotations of disability that have been used negatively against other people, right? So um, yeah, language is really important. I think it's, it um, can be really offensive to someone. And obviously, you know, we're all listening to this podcast because we don't want to be offensive. And so it's really important to choose our words wisely. Um, and going back to your question about person-first language. So for anybody who isn't familiar, person-first language would be saying person with disability. So you're putting the person first. Um, that also could be like child with, um, child with spina bifida. Um, parent with cerebral palsy. Um, and the opposite of that is called identity first language. So that would be putting the disability identity before the person. So disabled person, um, disa uh, let's see, what can I say? Uh, quadriplegic child. Um, so there has been this understanding for a while. I think if I were to do my research, I'd probably go back to like the 80s um, when there were parents all across our country who were starting to say like, hey, you know, we have Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. We want our children to be, to have an inclusive, accessible life. Um, and so, what started out, I think, with really good intentions had some, some different outcomes. One of them is that this person first movement came from that. Um, and because it didn't come from the disability community itself, um, it got a reputation as being something that other people wanted for disabled people. Right, so other people wanted the person to come first. Um, and, and a lot of disabled people will tell you, like, why would I be a person with a disability? I'm not a person with womanhood. I'm not a, a person with um, blackness. I, you know, I have all of my other identities that come before my person identifier. And, um, I think that a lot of disabled people think that that means that the disability is a problem. It's something to put behind. It's something to put like later because it doesn't mean as much or it's um, something to hide. And so there is like this identity first movement that has been growing for some time. A lot of disability activists and academics use identity first language. Um, 
you might hear a lot of folks in the autistic community um, really use identity first language. Folks in the deaf community use identity first language. You will not hear, I mean, I, I don't like to ever say like never, but you will probably never hear a deaf person say, I am a person with deafness because there is a lot of pride and, and um, joy in the deaf community around their deaf identities. Um, so I think like as a disability service provider, as someone who does not identify as having a disability yet in this lifetime, I um, use my queer identity to really sort of guide me in terms of like using language and just doing my job in general and thinking about using privilege and um, having that experience of oppression and whatnot. I um, try to foster an environment where people will feel comfortable using identity first language so that they know that that's an option. Because I think that a lot of people don't even know that it's an option to identify as disabled. Um, and so we, in the DRC, we try to foster that kind of environment where folks will feel comfortable doing that, hopefully, but also like, do you, you know, if you want to use that language for yourself, then that's great. So I use the, the words interchangeably. Um, and I think that that's important to do to kind of, um, yeah, to, demonstrate respect and also to demonstrate that there are other ways to um to identify that's a really good point um especially because you know you want to respect the communities and you want to respect what what they hold sacred um and i think relating to it you know in terms of like your queerness or maybe womanhood or blackness or whatever it is if so for people who want to understand sometimes that can be a way to um, kind of connect with it so thank you for that perspective um, and now i would love to pick your brain and talk about accommodations if we could shift to that um, because you know like you were talking about how you know some people might not identify as a person with a disability but might be struggling with something like a learning disability or something um, so how, how do people know if they need accommodations? What are, I know these are kind of two separate questions, but um, so how do people know if they need accommodations and then what are some of the most common ones that you help people with? Yeah, um, a lot of people don't identify as either disabled or having a disability and yet still could benefit from support from our office because we are not yet an inclusive, accessible place to learn and work. Um, hopefully one day in the future, you know, there will be so much accessibility and flexibility built in that no one will need to come to our office. That's the goal. Um, but for now, yeah, if, if you're a person who experiences chronic medical conditions of any kind, mental health conditions of any kind, learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, brain injuries, um, sensory difficulties like vision and hearing, autism, um, or any physical disability, and I may have missed some, who knows? I mean, really, it's, are you experiencing a barrier or do you think that you might experience a barrier because of the um, environment and how it's not built for you and your, your strengths and your needs? Um, 
you know, we, we see a lot of students, most students look over 90 something percent of our students are registered with us for quote unquote invisible disabilities. So, um, you know, I think we tend to think about disability as something physical, maybe um, it's someone who's blind or someone who uses American Sign Language or uses a wheelchair or a service animal, but the, the number of students who actually register with those kind of disabilities is a tiny fraction of the number of students who actually use our office. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think my first uh, recommendation would just be to have anyone who's like kind of questioning it, just reach out to us and have a meeting. And it's possible that, you know, there's maybe not much that we can do to help, but more than likely there's, there's something that we can do if you're experiencing that barrier, even in just reaching out to your instructor and saying, hey, have you considered, you know, um, putting your PowerPoints online before class begins? You know, we, something like that can be extremely simple for an instructor to do and can be uh, life-changing, just like really inc incredibly um, creating an incredible improvement in the educational experience of the student. Uh, other accommodations, so, so we do a lot like with in-class accommodations, things that are happening during the lecture, how can we get the student through the lecture more successfully? Because of course, that's where most of the learning begins. And if you're not following the lecture and you're not taking great notes, then it's gonna be really hard for you to study and do well on the test. So a lot revolves around that. Um, we also do work with students who have difficulty reading their textbooks. We offer technology that reads textbooks and other texts out loud. Um, and even if you're not someone who really is like an auditory learner, if you're struggling to get through your books, maybe you just like can only do it for a page or two before falling asleep or getting distracted. I mean, even having the audio going with, uh, you know, if you're someone like that, can keep you on track, right? Because the audio is not going to stop when you get distracted. <laughs> it's going to keep going. So um, that can be helpful. And then uh, a lot of testing accommodations. Almost everyone who registers with our office for any reason um, experience, experiences barriers in the testing environment. So um, we give a lot of extended time. Um, it still requires that you do all the same number of questions and that you, you know, that's the thing about accommodations in the university is that nothing that we do changes the, the learning outcomes of the course. Um, so the, all the same expectations are in place and we're really just changing the way in which students meet those expectations. That's so important. Um... And I have had a lot of those struggles too. And I, I have gotten to a point where I sometimes just don't even buy textbooks because I have so much trouble reading them. So I think a lot of people who have things like this that they might not consider like a disability um, can really benefit from your services. Um, and especially with remote learning and a lot of things being reading based, um, is the DRC doing anything specific to like remote le learning during COVID? Um, yeah, we are seeing a lot more students who are having um, some struggles with the amount of reading or, or um, the lack of engagement with other humans, including their instructors. 
Um, we, you know, we haven't changed too much of like what we're what we're offering to students as accommodations, um, but instead we're you know oftentimes kind of coaching students in different ways about how to get through their courses, getting students to the technology that I described a lot more often. Um, yeah, I mean I think. And our academic coaching program too, I should just throw that out there, is amazing. And that's um, through the Learning Center. So they have tutoring and they have academic coaching. And academic coaching is um, like totally different. I think sometimes they get confused. Um, but if you are somebody who struggles with any of the basic building blocks for being a good college student, so like time management, organization, goal setting, studying, test taking, they can walk through whatever it is that you need in a personal way, you know, um, figuring out what specifically you're good at and what specifically you're struggling with and kind of create a plan with you for how to get around whatever barriers coming up. So we refer a lot of students over to the academic coaching program and it's been pretty successful. Yeah, I, I was looking into their services as well and um, some of them are really helpful for people who are neurodivergent. So um, I think that's that's a great service to look into. And if someone is, is resonating with this and hasn't um, looked into your services at all, how would they go about getting and activating their accommodations? And, you know, do you need to do it every term? Does, is it forever? How does that work? Yeah, good question. So um, students would meet with someone in my office once. Um, usually it's about a 50 minute meeting and um, we'll talk to you about your experience and what's going on um, and, and figure out where those barriers are and what accommodations would be good for you. Um, and then after that, you as the student basically have the control to tell your instructors what accommodations you need in your classes. So um, let's say that in the first meeting that we have, we decide on five accommodations for you. Then you go in and you say like, okay, in my math class, I want all of my accommodations. In my English class, well, we don't have tests, so I don't need my testing accommodations, but I want the other ones. And then in my yoga class, I don't need any accommodations, so I'm good there. And then um, those letters go out then to those instructors to let them know what accommodations you're going to need in their classes. And the yoga instructor won't find out that you're even registered with us. The letter won't go out to them. So that gives the students a lot of power and control in telling their story and, and saying like, this is specifically what you need to know. Um, and that's what I'll need from you. The disability doesn't go out to the instructor in that letter or any of the symptoms or any of that like confidential stuff. It doesn't go out to the instructor and the instructor, you know, shouldn't be asking and doesn't need to know because the DRC is already aware of all of it. Um, anyway, that's the process. But if a student wants to do that initial appointment, they would contact us. Um, by calling our office and during remote time, we're asking students to call and leave a message and we'll get right back to them. Um, but we're at 503-725-4150. 
The other way to do it is to email us at drc.pdx.edu. Um, and either way, just to let us know that you're interested in having an initial appointment and we'll get you scheduled as soon as we can. That's awesome. And um, I will make sure to put the phone number that you mentioned and the email as well as as well as the DRC website in the description of the episode so that people can access it there. Um, and if if someone is having a hard time communicating with their professor and um, getting their accommodations met, um, how would they go about doing that and advocating for themselves? Yeah, so we we do that part as well. So as long as students let us know that they're having that difficulty, then we will either you know have the conversation for them or with them, depending on whatever is. Um, desired by the student and whatever is most most reasonable for the thing that's happening. But yeah, we're we're an ally in that process. So we help students get the accommodations and we help make sure that they are continuing to get them from that point forward. That makes sense. And um, you mentioned it in terms of confidentiality, but um, what are students' rights in terms of confidentiality and, and privacy about the services they're needing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so we follow FERPA, Family Education Right to Privacy Act, which is the same law that protects students' financial and academic information. Um, and students may have filled out a FERPA release form on campus so that their parents or partners or someone else can have access to their academics or their financial information. But um, disability information is kept confidential um, because we also follow the ADA's confidentiality constraints. So um, uh, what that means is if, if a student is interested in having a parent or a partner have access to any information from the DRC, then they would fill out a release in our office and we would then be able to give that person updates or communicate with them on behalf of the student if they're hospitalized or something like that. Um, but without a release, we really can't give any information, even the fact that a student is registered to anyone, unless that person is an instructor who is responsible for giving the student the accommodations, right? Then that letter goes out to them and we can communicate with them just about what it means to provide the accommodations and how they can do that. Um, the only other time that we release student information is if the student is having a medical emergency and the information that we have would be helpful to, you know, treating them. Um, or, you know, if something else happens, if the student like sues the university or something, we have to give that information away. But, you know, typically we, we just don't need to give the information. The student is in charge um, as an adult learner. You know, they're in charge of knowing what's best for them. And um, even if a parent or partner gets involved, the student is still in the driver's seat as much as is possible. That's so good to know. Taking that power back is, is a really important part of this um, process for sure. Um, so during during remote terms, during COVID, I know we're not having that physical space that people can find community in, but how can students um, use your center during remote terms? 
Yeah, um, we do have a really cool space in the DRC when we're back. Um, we call it the safer space. Um, and it's a community space where we have we have some smaller events, um, but we also have computer labs and um, disability studies texts and other things. Yeah, it's been hard um, and remote to sort of create that same sense of community, but we are partnering with Shack on some um, regular um, community events that are happening in Zoom around specific mental health topics. So those um, I'm sure can be found through Shack resources, but also through the DRC on our website and in our newsletter for students who are registered with us and receiving that. Um, we are also planning a bunch of other events for winter term, um, since we know now that we're gonna be remote again. But um, yeah, the details on that will, will be coming out soon, but students can check our website for more information. Awesome, you've answered all my questions. Uh, thank you so much. Do you have any parting words for people? Uh, disability is an aspect of diversity and accessibility is a human right and it's all of our responsibility to make it happen. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the What's Up podcast. We'll catch up with you on our next episode, which will be posted every Friday this term. While PSU has gone remote for the time being, we wanted to let you know that Shaq is still here for you. We are fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students. Please call ahead to use our health services for flu shots, free COVID testing, or general appointments at 503 503- 725-2800. Counseling services are still available via telehealth and you can schedule your appointments by calling that same number 503-725-2800. If you are looking for more health and wellness resources, you can check out our online health magazine that gets sent to your pdx.edu email every Wednesday or you can download the Campus Well app. You can also check out the virtual MindSpot experience to rest, relax, and rejuvenate wherever you have internet access. We will be including website links in the episode description. We also have a Google form that you can complete with any questions about health, check, or anything we discuss in the podcast. You can find the link in the episode description. Thanks for listening and take care.